Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Ethan Tucker. He works in commercial real estate and runs a family investment office in Baltimore. He blogs at thegarpinvestor.com, and his focus is on high-quality companies. Welcome to the podcast, Ethan. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Cool. So how did you first get interested in investing? So my dad was an entrepreneur when I was growing up. He ran a nursing home business. He was both the owner and manager. So I really got exposed to entrepreneurship as a kid. My dad would always talk about business and investing around the dinner table. And then, you know, when I was younger, he actually sold out of his business and was semi-retired. So from there, he really just focused on investing and he had a couple other business interests, but we would always talk about investing and business in the house. I like to joke, my dad's entire mood was dependent on the market. If the market was up that day, he'd be happy. If it was down that day, he'd be upset, which is not exactly the best from an investment standpoint, but it shows my early exposure to it. When I got to college, I studied business, but during college, my grandma had bought me a bond when I was first born. Probably when I was one years old, she bought a bond in my name. I want to say she put three, $4,000 into the bond. And over the course of you know, 18, 19 years, it compounded. When I was about 19, I cashed the bond, and that was worth roughly $10,000. So I used that as my first investment vehicle. And I took that $10,000, I opened up a brokerage account. And of course, I thought I knew what I was doing. I was making all kinds of trades, buying who knows what. And I learned a lot of lessons along the way. Have you ever heard of the Directions triple shares? They're they're, they're triple leveraged ETF. I've I've heard of it. You you experimented with with that? How'd that go? (laughs) Yes. So I experimented a lot with that. For those who don't know They are triple funds that track different investment vehicles like the S&P 500, Russell 2000, so on and so forth. If the S&P is up 1%, then the triple fund would be up 3%. And if it's down one, it would be down 3% and so on. So I was trading in and out of those. And then I went even further and put myself on margin. So I had $10,000. And then margin myself. So I was trading with probably $15,000 into triple funds. (laughs) Let me tell you, it's not something I would advise anyone to do. So the triple leverage wasn't enough. So you added margin on top of that. Oh, man, that's crazy. (laughs) And for a while, it worked really well. I thought, you know, I was God's gift to earth. I, you know, when the market was up, I would call it up. When the market was down, I would call it down. And within about a year, I had turned that $10,000 into about $35,000. So I thought I was really hot stuff. I thought I knew everything. And of course, it wasn't meant to be. Uh, Over the course of about a two-week period, the market saw a 10% drop. And due to my extreme leverage and everything going on, my $35,000 dropped to about $6,000 over the course of two weeks. 
So, so what, a, uh, what period of time was this in the market? Uh, about 2011, 2012. Mm, so after okay. the financial crisis, things were just volatile then. And this wasn't even a particularly large drop in the market. I think I was just so over leveraged and margined that the amplitude of the effect just was out of control. So I went from about $35,000 down to $6,000 in the course of two weeks. And as a, call it 20-year-old college student, to lose $29,000 was jarring, to say the least. I was pretty despondent. I don't think I left bed for two weeks. Just, you know, I just thought in college, I was like, imagine all the beer I could have bought with $29,000. But <laughs> and I sold <laughs> oh, out at the right time. But sort of during that entire time, my brother was already graduated from college and he had already sort of found Warren Buffett and got interested in investing. And the whole time he was telling me, you're kind of an idiot. You don't know what you're doing. Like, read Buffett, read Munger, learn about investing, try and actually learn some things. And I said, no, I know what I'm doing. And of course I didn't. I lost all kinds of money. And I said, all right, finally, I need to learn what I'm doing. I need to take a step back and focus. And I started reading about Warren Buffett. With that, about $6,000, I split it into two stocks. I bought about $3,000 worth of Apple and $3,000 worth of Google. I've held those two stocks, haven't sold a single share to this day. Apple's wow. up over since I bought it. Google's up over seven times since I bought it. So that $6,000 is now over $50,000. Still holding it today. Apple's been paying out dividends that entire time, still collecting those and reinvesting those. And of course, I've bought a lot more shares of Google and Apple since. Awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's a, those are great investments. And I'm, I'm, it's amazing that you've held them this entire time for a decade. Yeah, I mean, my, my style, I call myself the GARP investor, which to those who don't know is growth at a reasonable price. So I'm looking for the best companies possible, high quality companies with high returns on invested capital, good margins, strong companies with competitive advantages. And I'm looking to hold them ideally indefinitely, though, of course, things sometimes don't work out and you have to sell. But ideally, I'm going to hold shares forever. I don't plan on ever selling those Apple shares. Awesome. So let's uh, circle back to your current profession. So do you want to talk a little bit about what you're currently doing professionally and how that influences your investing? Yeah, absolutely. So my brother is about four years older than I am. And when he graduated from college, we both went to University of Maryland. He decided to join my dad in business and they decided to get into commercial real estate. They bought a building and I was still in college at the time, but when I graduated in 2013, I joined them in the commercial real estate business. We buy up commercial properties in and around Baltimore. We originally focused on all different asset classes. We bought office, retail, and industrial. We did less well with office and retail, and we did really well with industrial. So we've gone through the process of selling off our office and retail investments, now we're solely focused on industrial and the outdoor storage space. Okay, so what are some of the uh, advantages of, of that industry of industrial and, and storage? Well, the main advantage of industrial over, say, office and retail is that the tenants don't care 
so much about the optics of a building. They don't care that it's beautiful. They care about function. So you have to spend a lot less money, as my dad would say, putting lipstick on the pig. You're focused more on the property and making it to the highest and best use. And what we've seen in our property is the rent just grows every year. There's a lot of demand for the space. Occupancy rates are well into the 90s. So we just haven't seen the same level of vacancies. And when we do have a vacancy, it's relatively easy to fill and you don't have to do as what we would call TI. What's it called? You don't have to put much CapEx into the properties, tenant improvement, that's TI. So you don't have to do as much of that to get a tenant into the space. And there's just less to do with industrial than office and retail. And that's where we're going to put our focus going forward. Okay. Do you invest in any uh, public equities that have to do with the industrial real estate space or is that, or is that something you only do on your own? So I do look at REITs, but for the most part, I think we have enough commercial real estate exposure that we tend to focus more on other companies for our public equity portfolio. And then we buy our own real estate, but we have also invested in private equity real estate companies in private deals, but less in the public markets. Cool. And the real estate that you're investing in, is it all mostly around that uh, Baltimore area or do or you expand beyond that? So thus far, we're mostly in the Baltimore area in, I don't know how familiar you are with Maryland, but we own a bunch of properties in Harford County, Maryland, which is in Northeast Maryland between Baltimore and Philadelphia. But we are looking to expand into other areas. We actually have a property under contract in Delaware right now, which is somewhat close by. I don't want to comment on too many of the details because we haven't closed on the property. But, you know, we're now starting to look in other places. We find that you can find properties that are a little cheaper on a price per square foot basis in other states. So Maryland's just a very picked over area. You know, it's between D.C. and Philadelphia, and it's just a very exposed market. Everyone's aware of it. And if we go to some lesser known areas, we find there might be more opportunities. So we're looking to expand our area of expertise. Gotcha. And how are you thinking about the real estate market these days? Do you think that we're in a bubble? Do you think things are reasonably priced? Do you think it's more about like what you're looking at and where you're looking at? What's your opinion on that? So it's hard to comment on the entire commercial real estate world or entire real estate world. It's a very one, asset class by asset class, and two, location by location kind of business. But I think asset-wise, we've seen the office sector get killed with work from home. Real estate, you make your money on the final tenant. You know, If you're running at 80% occupancy, you're probably not making money. If you're at 100% occupancy, you're going to make a lot of money. So if you even lose one or two tenants in an office property, you might go from positive to cash flow negative. Retail has done a little better than office, but I really still like the industrial market. Occupancy rates have remained high. We've had a lot of building going on and those new build properties, they get occupied pretty quickly. So, you know, I think it just depends on the asset class as well as the location, but it's hard to comment on real estate as a whole. But we obviously have seen interest rates tick up. And when interest rates tick up, you know, mortgage rates are higher. And therefore, you know, if it's trading at a 6% cap rate and all of a sudden you're getting your mortgage at 7%, 
things aren't going to work out so well. So you need a spread between the cap rate and the mortgage if you want to make money. Gotcha. Yeah. And do you think there's any opportunities in commercial or office or do you think like maybe they've, the decline has been overblown or do you think uh, it's mostly rational? I think what's happened has been pretty rational, but I mm -hmm. think over time things have a way of evening themselves out. You know, a lot of the current office holders, they're going to have to renegotiate their mortgages when their term loans come due. And a lot of them are going to be forced to liquidate and they're going to be forced to liquidate at low prices. So, you know, people looking to buy office, if they get in at a low enough price, they could possibly do very well. But at the current basis, I think they're in a lot of trouble, but it's all about the buy price. If you can get it in cheap enough, you can do really well. So it's, it's hard to comment as a whole, but it's all about where you buy and where you sell. So you think there's probably going to be a bigger wave of selling later on when they're basically for when there's going to be more forced liquidations? I mean, I think there's going to have to be. Right now, you know, just a few years ago, we were seeing mortgage rates at three, three and a half percent. And now when I go to the banks and ask, you know, what are loans looking like? It's around seven percent today. And if you have to, you know, in, in a residential loan, they'll give you a 25 year 30-year loan, and you never have to renegotiate. Commercial doesn't work that way. Banks pretty much never give you a 30-year loan. They'll give you a 25-year amortization with somewhere between a five and 10-year term. So you must refinance within five to 10 years. And a lot of those people who financed five, 10 years ago are coming up to their refinancing event over the next year or two. And all of a sudden, they're going to have to refinance it six, seven percent. And what looked like a good property before, all of a sudden they can't cash flow on. So they're going to be in a lot of trouble. Okay. Something to keep an eye out for. <laughs> it's definitely something to keep an eye on. I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. I think there will be opportunity, but I think current office holders will be in trouble. Okay. So how do you think about leverage with real estate? Like, what do you think's like a responsible degree of leverage? Like, how, how, do, how do you think about that? So I think it has to do with the interest rate environment. When interest rates were lower, you could get a three, three and a half percent mortgage. I think you could comfortably take on a higher leverage and still be pretty comfortable. We were looking at, you know, we typically have a loan to value of 70, 75 percent. So you'd have 25% equity, 30% equity in the property. Now that interest rates are approaching 7% or so, I think you'll be in trouble if you take 75% leverage. So you're probably more comfortably looking at 65, 60% loan to value just to be comfortable. But even then, it's troubling seeing higher interest rates and, you know, it looks like interest rates are leveling off, but we never know. Inflation could still run rampant. And interest rates could rise higher. And you have to be even more prudent with your investments and be wary of whatever mortgages you take on. Yeah, interest rates are one of the most unpredictable things in, in the Absolutely. macro picture. I mean, I could see inflation raging out of control. Inflation, our interest rates go higher. I could see the economy imploding and the Fed goes back to ZERP. Who the hell knows? <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big macro prognosticator, but 
when you're in the real estate world, you at least have to monitor it because it everything is so dependent on the interest rate environment. Gotcha. Okay, so let's move on to stocks. So you talked about you had these experiences with with levered ETFs and levering that up mm -hmm. and you had this crisis and fortunately it happened to you at a young age. So that's Correct. that's good. So your brother, he introduced you to the concepts of Warren Buffett. So is is Warren Buffett kind of your main investing influence? Yeah, I mean everything definitely goes back to Warren Buffett. I've of course read things from all kinds of different investors, from Peter Lynch to Chuck Ockrey to Francois Rachon, Pat Dorsey, all kinds of different investors. But Buffett is sort of the genesis of every modern investor's style. He has taught us all, you know, to focus on free cash flow and high returns on invested capital and finding good businesses with competitive advantages that you want a company with a moat that can defend itself from new entrants into businesses and that you can be sure will be earning money next year, five years from now, and hopefully even 20 years into the future. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely defined that whole style of investing. He basically created it and he's he's the man as far as that goes. Absolutely. So uh, do you have any other investing influences aside from Buffett that have been a major impact on your work? Well, obviously with Buffett comes Munger. I often actually like reading and listening to what Munger says a little more than Buffett because Buffett is very controlled. He tends never to say a negative word about anyone, whereas Munger is way more off the cuff. He'll say anything to anyone and can be a lot more fun to listen to because he'll tear someone down if he feels it necessary. But I mentioned him before, but Peter Lynch is probably my other greatest investment influence. He wrote a couple books, one up on Wall Street and Beating the Street. And it really shows you that the common everyday investor does have some advantage over, you know, big corporate institutions that, you know, hedge funds and large corporate entities, they're very, very focused on the next quarter, what's going on in the next year. And Lynch talks about that. If you're able to look out a little further, if you can focus five, 10 years down the road, you can have what they call time arbitrage that, you know, everyone's looking at what's going on in a stock today. Whereas if you can just forecast a little further out, then you can have a real advantage over those focused on such short-term, what do you call it? Short-term determination. But I really like Peter Lynch's style. He talks about buy what you know, so that if you go to the mall and you see this store is doing really well, you don't necessarily want to buy it right away, but it's a stock you should research because if they can convince other people to spend their money, it might be a good stock to own. And particularly if it's a company that can get you to spend your own money, it's definitely a good place to look. If you find yourself buying Coca-Cola a lot, you might think Coca-Cola might be a great stock to own, but then you got to go do your research. You have to go look at their financial reports, read the annual reports and see if they're actually earning money and whether it's a good investment or not. Were your investments in Apple and Google kind of a buy what you know scenario? Were you using those products a lot? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in college, I had a MacBook, I had iPods, and then I bought an iPhone. So I was very linked into the Apple e ecosphere. And then Google, you know, everyone uses Google every day. So I was very well of them and their products. You know, Google bought out YouTube. I use YouTube every day. So I was very well aware of their products. And I just thought these are probably the best companies in the world. And I want to own them for now and well into the future. 
And I think that still remains true today. They're both stronger than ever. They're earning more money than ever. Their returns on capital are as good as ever. And they're just fabulous businesses to Great. Yeah, and I love Peter Lynch's book. I, I've read both of them. I think Beating the Street is my favorite. I love how it mm-hmm. I love how it takes you like through case by case basis on a case by case basis through different investments he made. He talks about why he made it and it's all yep. it's all very accessible. Like you can he's clearly defining, hey, here's my thesis, here's what I did, here's how it worked out. It's it's a great book. Anyone who's interested in investing should read it. And then he also has a great list of basically like principles of investing that you can turn to, which I think are, are very useful. So I'm um, high level. Like how would you describe what you look for in terms of a moat? Well, in terms of a moat, you're looking for competitive advantages. So that can come in a, uh, in a few different ways. Obviously one is network effect. So a network effect is if the more people who use it, the better the product gets. So let's think of Facebook and Instagram. Facebook isn't very interesting if there's a thousand people on the network, but Facebook and Meta, the greater company, now has three billion average daily users. A network with three billion daily average users is a really good network, and you're going to be able to see all your friends, all the celebrities, all the influencers, everyone you want on that same network. Another one is cost advantages, meaning the bigger a company, the better economies of scale it gets. Coca-Cola, if they only sell a few bottles of Coke every year, doesn't have many cost advantages. But because they sell billions of dollars worth every year, they can go to their suppliers and lean on them and say, we want the best price for your syrup, or we want the best sugar prices possible. We want the best possible. And if not, we're going to go to the person next door and ask them. So you're always looking what matters of scale you can push on your suppliers, what you can if you can raise cost on your customers, there's a bunch of different competitive advantages, but you want to look of what you have that someone else doesn't have. Buffett often uses the example of a toll booth that imagine you own a toll booth on a bridge. And if you want to get to an island on the other side of the bridge, you have to cross it every single day. If you own that toll booth, you've got an incredible competitive advantage. Every single day, people want to cross that bridge. They have to pay you. And Most public companies don't have something as simple as a toll booth, but there are examples we see in the public investing universe. For instance, Visa and MasterCard. They essentially have a toll booth on every credit card transaction done in the entire world. So every time someone swipes their credit card, Visa and MasterCard get about a 0.1% transaction fee on every item sold. So the more items sold every day in the world, they make more money. I also have a... (laughs) My brother and I have invested in both Visa and MasterCard for many years now, been one of our better investments. I don't think I'll ever sell it. Nice. Yeah, they're definitely formidable moats. Every transaction that's happening with a credit card, like you mentioned, is going has a share of it that's going to them. So yeah, those are, those are very difficult moats to unravel and uh, the stock performance reflects it. I mean, over the last, since they've gone public, I think they went public in like 07, 08, something like that. They've, that sounds they've, great performed tremendously. Yeah. And they, uh, surprisingly, they have been available at pretty compelling prices a few times. Like they were fairly cheap after the financial crisis for a while. They were around like 10x EV bit. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you could go back and buy them, then you'd have done tremendously well. Recently, they trade at pretty premium values, though 
deservedly so. They're amongst mm -hmm. the best companies in the entire world. I don't think I own Visa or MasterCard in my public portfolio, though I'd love to. I just don't think there's been a compelling price to do so. But you know, if you ever see Visa or MasterCard stock drop 25, 50%, load up the truck. That's all I'll <laughs> say about that. Gotcha. How do you think about valuation? So you know, you're more of a growth modier oriented investor. That usually means that people are willing to pay up. So how do you think about valuation? How does that enter your analysis? So obviously the lower the multiple, the better. If I could buy the best companies in the world at a five times multiple, I'd do that all day. Unfortunately, most of the great companies do not trade at such low values. So my general mantra is I'm trying to find the best companies in the world and if I can get them at a price below the market multiple, I think that's usually pretty good value. So if the general overall S&P 500, say, is trading at a 20, 25 times multiple, if I could get, say, a Google or a Microsoft, something of that nature at a 15 to 18 times multiple, I think you'll do really well. So generally what I say is if you can get an above average company at a below average market multiple, over time, you're bound to do well. So you're comparing, so that's the main crux of it is you're comparing it to like the S&P 500's typical multiple, and then you're hoping to get a high quality business at a discount to that. Correct. Yeah. And generally what I advise most people who aren't like me and spend hours every day just looking at financial reports and looking up all those different charts and this, then advise everyone just dollar cost average into the S&P 500 or a world ETF low cost index fund. But for myself, that's the basis I'm comparing it to. I compare myself to the S&P 500. So I say, you know, if I can get prices a little lower with an above average company to the S&P, I think over time I'm bound to do well. Time will tell, obviously. So, and if you're talking about getting things at a discount to a market multiple, you're using more of a relative valuation thing. So my guess is that you are not in favor of any form of market timing. Like you're going to assume that the S&P 500 multiple is rational and then move on from there as, your, as a comparison. I'd say it's mostly rational. That at times, obviously they're exuberant prices and sometimes they're very low prices. Over time, I think it's rather, it's relatively rational. But you should look, I'm not a market timer. I think, however, on an individual company basis, you do want to time things in that there are better prices and there are worse prices. If you see my favorite time to buy a stock is if I think they report a relatively good quarter, but it doesn't quite reach market expectations. And all of a sudden you find a stock that did well, but it's dropping 10% on the day. And I say, that's the best time to buy. Because I think the company still did great. It just didn't reach those kind of stupid market expectations of this company was supposed to report $1.05 in earnings, and it only hit $1.02. And I say, who cares about $0.03? Cents? You know, over the course of 10 to 20 years, those $0.03 cents don't matter. The company's just as good. The margins are just as good. But this might provide an opportunity to get in at a better price. And what multiples do you use? So do you use like enterprise multiples, PEs, forward PEs, price to cash flow? What, what are your preferred so, multiples to look at? Yeah, my preferred, 
if I could only look at one, my preferred multiple is price per trailing 12-month free cash flow. So generally, I'll look at operating cash flow plus depreciation and amortization minus CapEx. So generally, I'm looking for low CapEx companies. I want companies that aren't, do not have to put a lot of money into heavy capital expenditures. It leaves them with a lot of free cash flow every year that they can then spend that free cash flow on dividends, buybacks, acquisitions, you name it, whatever they have in mind. But I like companies that have a lot of free cash flow every year and can do things to reward their shareholders. Gotcha. So, and you're mostly, it seems like you're mostly through that metric, you're looking more for like established companies. Like you're not really looking at uh, super early stage stuff. Am I correct in, in that? Yeah, I'd say every now and then I'll look at a micro cap or a very small company, but for the most part, my bread and butter is probably mid cap to large cap, though I do own obviously some mega cap companies like Apple, Microsoft, Google, so on and so forth. But if I could find my ideal company, it would probably be a $5 billion market cap company that has the chance to grow you know, 10, 20 times into a 50 to $100 billion market cap company. And along the way, they could purchase shares. So I would own a larger percentage of the company every single year. But that mid cap, you know, one to 10 billion is probably ideal. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Where do you stand on selling? So you have on one extreme, like the never sell camp, you have on another extreme day traders. So where do you fall in that, in that matrix? Like, how do you think about selling stocks? So selling, I think is my greatness in investing. I think it's the hardest part of the investing game. Buying, I find relatively easy. I find a good company. I think it's trading at a pretty good price. I buy, but selling there's a lot more variables that go into it because generally you want to sell a company because it's not performing well. And then all of a sudden the stock drops and you say, is the stock going to recover? Is it going to stay at this low price? What multiple is it at? And I just find it very difficult to know exactly when to sell a company. And I struggle with it. I have made my greatest mistakes in investing have actually not come from losses of capital in businesses, it's come from selling a company and then watching it go up a ton. I talk about Chipotle a lot. In Chipotle, they struggled with all the Ebola and other you know, food crises. E. coli, not Ebola. <laughs> That's yeah. a big difference. Ebola liquefies yeah, your it, organs. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, if it was Ebola, there would be an even bigger problem. Yeah. No, e. coli, you're correct. <laughs> uh, so they were struggling with those. And I thought at the time, you know, this might be irreparable, permanent damage to the brand that they kept having these problems over and over again. And I thought the stock got crushed and I thought they might never recover. And I, you know, I can judge my decision now, but back then I thought, you know, what if no one ever returns to Chipotle? They, as I said, could have done irreparable damage to the brand. So, of course, I sold out at a low, and I think I literally bottom-ticked the low. I sold within a couple days of the very low price that they reached within five years. And now I think Chipotle stock is up 10 times since then. So I have calculated the amount of money I've lost, and I cry at night over it. <laughs> just kidding. But that does hurt me inside. I just see 
huge mistake. Had I just been, I'd be a lot happier. Gotcha. Yeah. Chipotle is an interesting case study. They definitely had those ongoing problems, those outbreaks for Mm -hmm. years. They seem to have mastered the quality control to make sure that they've been able to deal with it. I know one of the things was they had a lot of the ingredients prepared at other locations so that, you know, the people in the stores can't necessarily contaminate them. And then they did a great job during COVID of moving to mobile ordering and Mm -hmm. adapting very quickly to that whole environment. So yeah, it's, it's an outstanding company. I'd, I'd, I'm interested in owning it someday. And and it's amazing how they were able to turn around from that, that crisis. Yeah. They, I mean, they've been a tremendous company. They've put an onus on what they call Chipotle lanes. So they have a, they're focused more on drive-throughs and then they brought on the Taco Bell CEO to be their new CEO. And I think he's done a great job. It's a great company. I'd be happy to own it again. I just think they trade it something like 40 or 50 times free cash flow right now. And, you know, if it traded more at around 20 versus 40, I'd be a lot more likely to buy. Yeah. Same. I'm on, it's on my watch list. I'm interested in owning Mm -hmm. it if it ever, if it ever gets around that price. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your portfolio, the public portfolio that you post on thecarpinvestor.com. So we have a mutual long, Alta. So I think Alta is a great company. I think it was at a pretty good valuation, so I bought some recently. So what's your uh, bull case for Alta? Well, full disclosure, I actually bought some Alta stock literally this morning, so I am clearly pretty bullish on the stock. Ulta is the largest beauty product retailer in the country. They have over 1,400 standalone locations, what they call store in a store. Sell beauty products. They sell at a very, very high margin. They have high returns on invested capital. They are actually a very simple business model. They're the best beauty retailer in the business. They sell at good margins. Every year they open up additional stores. They raise same store sales every year. They can raise prices a little bit on the merchandise every single year. And they generate a lot of free cash flow. And the only thing they do with their free cash flow right now is they open up more stores and they buy back a lot of shares. Last year they had about a billion dollars in free cash flow. They spent a billion dollars on share buybacks. Since or 2016, they have reduced the share count about 20%. They've gone from about 64 million shares outstanding to a little over 50 million shares outstanding. So the management team has shown a clear indication that you know, they have shareholders in mind and they want to reward shareholders with share buybacks. And that makes me very comfortable with the company that they're not spending on all kinds of crazy, stupid initiatives. They have their mind in the right place that we generate free cash, we're going to buy back shares. Very simple. And That's what I like to see out of a company. They, I believe they went public in 2007. They have increased both revenue and earnings every single year since 2007, except for one year, which was 2021 in the midst of the COVID crisis. Obviously during COVID, no one was leaving the house. And I think beauty products became pretty low on the totem pole of things people needed during COVID. So They definitely took a hit during COVID, but since in 2022 and now in 2023, they've rebounded very well, have come back to the stores, and they're doing better than ever. Yeah, I I agree with all of that. And they are, I was really impressed with the 
share buybacks that we've seen recently. They kind of remind me of some of like the auto parts retailers. Yeah. Like looking at them, it felt like I was like the way I think about it is it's almost like buying O'Reilly auto parts at like mm -hmm. yeah, earlier, they're... you know, at an earlier time period. It seems like they're in a hyper growth phase. And on top of that, that you get this tremendous shareholder yield. I think you're exactly right. I think we've seen both O'Reilly's and AutoZone have been, as Manish Prabhupada would put it, shareback cannibals that mm -hmm. they just look to buy up their own stock every single year, but they've reduced the share count tremendously. I have owned, in one of my portfolios, I also own O'Reilly's, so I really like that company. I think they follow a similar model. Retail, I think, is a tough business. You know, over the years, we've seen all kinds of retailers get killed. You look at JCPenney and Toys R Us and Macy's, all these that used to be tremendous retailers, and they've gotten killed. And what we've seen is these specialized retailers have been able to withhold the threat of Amazon and Walmart's growth, obviously. But you have to have a niche. If you don't specialize in something that gives customers some reason to come into your store, you're going to get killed. But as you said, the auto parts retailers, things like TJ Maxx, Ali's Bargain Outlet, Five Below, Ulta, Costco, things like that, people will come back to your stores. So Ulta's great because women particularly, they like to see the product. They want to go in, they want to see the different nail polishes, they want to see the different makeups and be able to compare it on their skin, things like that. Things you don't necessarily want to buy on Amazon. So they like to be able to go in the stores and check it out. Ulta runs in each of their stores. The salons themselves aren't a huge moneymaker, but people who use their salons are, I think it's three times more likely to then shop in the stores and buy additional products. Additionally, uh, Ulta runs a loyalty program, a lot like Starbucks rewards program that they now have 40 million members signed up. I think they say 95% of merchandise is sold to loyalty members. So every additional person they get on their email chain, or they, they get data from each of their loyalty members. They're able to send them emails and push notifications, things like that, which makes them more likely to come in the store. And then they get rewards and discounts for being loyal members. So it's, you know, it's a, what do they call it? A two-sided marketplace of so it benefits both parties to come in and out. And as I said, it's a lot like the Starbucks rewards program, which has been tremendously successful for them, which is another stock I own, by the way. Gotcha. Yeah. And the loyalty program, I came across a crazy stat when I was researching it. It's something like 25% of all American women are Ulta loyalty members. So wow. that gives you some perspective on, on the scale of it all. So, and I agree with you about Amazon. I think that's probably of all the competitive threats, that's the biggest one that's out there is mm -hmm. that people could just buy their makeup on Amazon. But I agree with you that the salon helps contain some of that. And on top of that, most of the customers of cosmetics want to actually see it before they put it on. So hopefully that continues to insulate them from that competition. So some other companies that you're long, you're also long Etsy. I thought that was pretty an interesting pick. So what's, uh, what's the bull case for Etsy? Well, I'll be honest, of companies I own, I'm probably the least bullish about Etsy. But the pitch for them is it's a two-sided marketplace. They have incredibly high margin. The business is pretty simple. They have a platform that allows sellers to come on. They make homemade and uh, customized products that they sell to customers. I've bought on Etsy many times. It's great for gifts and personalized items that 
if you go to a wedding and you want a personalized cutting board or some kind of gift, you go on Etsy and you buy them. They've been a tremendous growth company in the past. They've done really well. But in the last couple of years, I've really started to question their capital allocation decisions. They've done a couple of different acquisitions, namely Depop and uh, what's it Reverb. And they paid unbelievably large multiples to buy these businesses. And then all of a sudden, we saw multiples contract for those kinds of businesses. And they spent over a billion dollars on them. And then the next year, they essentially wrote off a billion dollars worth of intangible goodwill, I believe, showing that it was just completely wasted capital. And growth has sort of tapered off in the business. As I said, just question the capital allocation decisions of the management. So right now, I'm of two minds. I think shares are trading at a much lower price, so I'm hesitant to sell. As I said, I've been in that in the past of selling at a Chipotle and I've sold Costco at bad times before that I don't want to be hasty and sell out too quickly, right? As a company is showing some problematic tendencies, but I am, it is on my radar that that is a company I might want to sell and buy into a company I'm more sure of. Okay. So we'll keep an eye out for that one. <laughs> Investing is hard. <laughs> that's Investing what is hard. That's, that's right. So you also own Dollar General. So I thought that was a pretty interesting pick. So what's what's the case for Dollar General? So Dollar General is a retailer kind of like Ulta, as I said. It's a niche retailer. Obviously, they're a dollar store, though products are now selling above a dollar. They're kind of similar to Walmart, though obviously have a much lower square footage for their boxes. Walmarts are obviously huge. Dollar Generals are much smaller. Walmart tends to go into big cities and then rather large towns. But if you're a town of, say, five, 10,000 people, it isn't big enough to service a Walmart. So Dollar General has gone into all these small towns and has essentially become the local retailer, like a Walmart, but at a much smaller square footage. And it's worked really well. They've had really strong returns, really strong growth rates over the year. They're able to spend a lot of their capital opening up new stores every year. And I don't think they've reached the limit of how many they can open by any measure. They also have international expansion opportunities into Canada and Mexico. And who knows about Europe one day, we'll see. But Dollar General is just a very well-managed company. They grow their earnings and revenue virtually every year. I think management knows what they're doing. They have pretty good capital allocation. And I just think it's a strong, well-run business. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the only risk out there is that they might be very saturated in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah like the question is how, much, how many more units can they really pack into the United States? They are, right. I forget how many right now, but tens of thousands of dollar generals across the country. And it's what's the limit of that? So you're absolutely right. Yeah. But like you mentioned, there are some international opportunities. I know that they recently opened some stores in Mexico. So perhaps like you mentioned, Mexico might be a, a growth area for them. And then who knows, they could shift gears and shift towards more of like a shareholder yield kind of uh, company where they're returning a lot of that capital to shareholders. Shareholder years. And we've seen acquisitions in this family dollar and uh, what was the other dollar store? Not Dollar General, but the Dollarama? There were three big dollar store companies. No, they're the Canadian one. But uh, yeah, it, it does. Was it Family Dollar? Family Dollar. Okay. 
either way, two of the three big ones combined, Dollar General stayed on their own, but there might be acquisition opportunities for some of the smaller dollar store chains. So I'd probably look at that in the future as a potential capital allocation decision. Cool. And then uh, a mutual long, another mutual long that we have is Alphabet. So how are you thinking about Alphabet right now? Well, obviously the big story of Alphabet over the past couple of years has been ChatGPT and whether that poses a threat to the business that before ChatGPT really came along, Google and Alphabet was coasting on, they were doing incredibly well, growing revenue earnings, everything looked beautiful. And then ChatGPT came out and all of a sudden people thought maybe people are going to stop using Google. Everyone's going to use ChatGPT. They're going to skip Google and just go straight to ChatGPT to ask their questions. And thus far, we actually have not seen that to be the case. Google's usage is at an all-time high. YouTube has been as popular as ever. So I think Google has been able to withstand the threat of ChatGPT They obviously have their own large language model AI division that they're working on themselves, but Alphabet and Google has been one of my best performing companies, and I think they'll be so for years into the future. They struggle to come up with a better business than Google search. It costs them virtually nothing, and they get paid a ton of money on ads every single year, and they just grow every year and YouTube is a wonderful business as well. I often compare what would I rather own, all of YouTube or all of Netflix? And I don't know, they're pretty close. So for Google just to own that, I believe they bought it for, what was it, $19 billion or something? But now it's worth many, many multiples of that. So that was a great acquisition. Yeah, I think I think it was even way smaller than that. I think they... Maybe, maybe I'm confusing I, that with another, but... I think they might've spent less than a billion on it, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you might be right. And if so, even better for <laughs> they. Uh, yeah, but YouTube is is an amazing asset. I agree. Like, and one of the things that I notice is like when I talk to parents with kids, is that kids don't watch TV anymore. They watch YouTube. Mm-hmm. So that's the future. Is like, and what what streaming, you know, what video streaming platform, free video streaming platform, is going to displace YouTube? I just don't see it happening. No, absolutely. I think you hit it right on the head that I think YouTube usage, particularly in the Gen Z and whatever they call the youngest generation, all they do is use YouTube. They don't watch TV. Even Netflix, they think is boring. They don't watch movies. It's all YouTube and TikTok and so on and so forth. So I think Alphabet and YouTube is well prepared for the next generation. Yeah. The one... I was going to say, I think the one caveat I have with Alphabet is I do not like their spending on other bets. They spend a lot of money on other bets, Waymo and all the other divisions of other bets, and it loses, I think it's about a billion dollars every year. Maybe it's more, maybe it's less. But I don't see these as great growth initiatives. They're not making much revenue from these, and it's costing a whole lot of money. And if they were just to spin off or sell out of these other bets, they could both bring in capital as well as lower their yearly costs. Though I think they like to add costs on to hide how profitable the business really is. Yeah, I don't know. Other bets, I mean, it is a billion dollars, which uh, is a lot of money, but it's not really a lot of money for Google. So. That's true. 
I don't know. Yeah, Maybe there's something there. packed in there that's going to be useful in the future. I'm I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I think about one of the things I think about with other bets is Xerox. Xerox used to invest in all kinds of weird things and they thought of it like, oh, what is this junk? And like it was one of the big things was the mouse and the graphical interface. <laughs> which they sold in, in the early 1980s to, to Steve oh, Jobs. Yeah, they invented the mouse, the graphical interface. They invented wow. all of it. And then uh, they said, ah, who needs this garbage? We're going to sell it to Steve Jobs. <laughs> I, mean, um, I think you always have to be wary of what's changing. I think when the digital camera first came around, the... Nikon and the other big Kodak, the other mm -hmm. big camera companies. I think it was a employee at Kodak who invented the digital camera or yeah. was one of the big guys in the technology and he brought it to them and they said, oh, but this is going to kill our film business. That's where we make all our money. Mm -hmm. So they said, screw you. And he left and started a digital camera company. And then now Kodak doesn't even exist anymore. Or they yeah. are pretty much a nothing these days. So you have to be able to evolve with the times. Well, if you have a uh, incredible high margin product, which is what film was, it was like printing money, really hard to say, hey, this is going to be gone 10 years from now. We need to think about what we're going to do after this. And uh, it's just a very difficult decision for a company to make. I mean, you have to make a decision to be less profitable in the future. Like right. it's, it's a tough, tough thing to navigate. Yeah, I mean- We've seen it over and over. You know, Blockbuster had the opportunity to buy Netflix for pennies, mm -hmm. and they passed because they thought it would cannibalize their own business. And I understand from their standpoint that was a difficult decision to make because it would ruin their current money-making business. But in the long term, you know, you have to think of what the implications might be. Yeah, another another kind of amazing high-margin business where you buy one of the videotapes for fifty bucks or whatever, and then you can rent it out four dollars pop for. In perpetuity, mm -hmm. well, not perpetuity for <laughs> for a few years anyway. Year and and uh, yeah, it was another great business that they just didn't want to destroy. But yeah, it's, it's hard to do that. It's hard to destroy your own business because you see technological change on the horizon. Cool. So I thought this was a great conversation. I enjoyed talking with you about about these longs. What are some of the best ways for people to learn about you and reach you? So the best ways to reach me are one, you can go to my website. It's thegarpinvestor.com. And then actually the best way of reaching me is on Twitter at the Garp Investor. I'm on Twitter all the time. Feel free to DM me, message me, talk to me on Twitter. I'm on there all the time. I'm easy to reach. But just like to thank you for having me on and giving me this opportunity. Yeah, thanks. And I, I appreciated the conversation. Thought it was great. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.